Well, good morning. I'm, you know, I'm really excited to con- continue on in our series called Sunday School Stories. Uh, and when I was kind of praying through what message to bring this morning, you know, the idea of the series is talk about familiar stories from the Bible. And I went to James and I said, there's this story that I don't really know. Any, I don't think anybody would know. And he's like, bro, the whole point of this is like the greatest hits of the Bible. But I'm such like, you know, my personality is like, let's go to something new. Let's do something different. Let's go. We, you know, we go from glory to glory, adventure to adventure. So I don't have like a secretive like story that you didn't know was in the Bible this morning. I have maybe the most common story that uh, even Hollywood talks about. And that's the life of Moses and, and, and how in the book of Exodus, God would fulfill his promise through Moses and eventually lead him through the Red Sea, which if that was me giving away the ending for you, um, I'm sorry. You probably knew that, I would imagine. Did anybody not know that? Just, just real quick. I'm not going to put you on the spot, right? Okay. So we are a little bit familiar with the story of Moses, are we not? Um, but this morning, before we go to the story of Moses, I want you to do this. I want you to close your eyes for me real quick. Close your eyes, and I want you to think back to the year 1958. Now, some of you guys were alive in 1958. This would not be very hard for you. For others of you, like me, the reason I asked you to close your eyes is because we need some imagination here. I was very much not alive in 1958. My mother wasn't even alive in 1958. But let's think about this. What? <laughs> Did I just age somebody in here? What, what happened? <laughs> My bad. All right. You know what? I'll leave. I'll just, I'll, I'll get out of here. Dwight Eisenhower was president in 1958. The hula hoop was invented in 1958. I know you were really holding your breath on that one. The Amex card was introduced in 1958. Gunsmoke, any, any fans of Gunsmoke? What, what? Gunsmoke was the most popular TV show of the year. I know there's a lot of other TV shows there. Anybody else got one that maybe you watched in 1958? Shout it out. I don't even know what you just said, but, I'll, but, I, I, but I trust you because I wasn't there, all right? Uh, the Baltimore Colts won the Super Bowl that year in 1958. The Baltimore Colts, now the Baltimore Ravens, right? Uh, let's see, the Alaska Statehood Act was signed that year. It would later go into effect where Alaska would become a state. Uh, pretty cool, huh? But that's right, you graduated high school. I love this church, man. It's like a giant living room. Um, but one that I want to I wanna lean into this morning is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration was founded in 1958. Also known as NASA, it replaced uh, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which I think you would say NACA. But I like NASA better too. So... NASA was founded in 1958 for this purpose. This, is, this was the vision of, of, of NASA in 1958. It was, it was to you know, mainly focus on the expansion of human knowledge of phenomena in the atmosphere and space. What a goal. What? What a goal. What a lofty goal to go and explore space. I'm not really sure how exactly that materialized, but what I do know is that NASA was actually created in 1958 out of a a response from the Soviet Union launching Sputnik into the orbit of Earth, which I'm sure a lot of you remember that. That was a a huge deal. If you don't remember that, you can refer back to Jake Gyllenhaal's breathtaking performance in October Sky, which is a movie about Sputnik and about the space race. Uh, But I digress on that one. If you need a reference on that movie, I will just text me. I'll give it to you. I had to watch that in high school. But NASA was founded as in, in, in response to that. It was like this, oh crap moment. Like, what are we going to do? Because 
The Soviets were ahead of us in what we now refer to as the space age, the space race, right? Where everybody was scrambling to get to space. Who was going to control space? And up to this point, the Soviets totally had a leg up on everybody else, right? So they created NASA, and they started this exploration of how are we going to get to space and explore space and dominate space. I'm sure, you know, they didn't have it in mind that Elon Musk would eventually want to colonize space, but, you know, we'll get, the, we'll, we'll get there one day. But in 1961, we're full-on space race by now. And does anybody know who was the president around that, that time frame? JFK. So JFK arrives on the scene, and instead of regurgitating the vision of NASA, he says one thing that changed the entire trajectory of what NASA would come to do over the next decade. He said, no matter what happens, we are going to put a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth before this decade is out. Now, this is three years post-NASA's founding with very little uh, movement into maybe moon exploration or things like that. He doesn't regurgitate the vision of just exploration. Instead, he gives the American people and he gives NASA this crazy, big, hairy, audacious, BHAG goal of we're going to get to the moon and the footprints on the moon are going to belong to an American. We're going to put him back in the spaceship, and he's going to come all the way back home. And he's going to be able to tell the tale of going to the moon. It was a promise. It was a goal. It was a very clear destination. It wasn't just a direction, and it wasn't a wide net. It was very specific. We're going to the moon. And that was the goal. And as most of you know, that ended up happening in the year 1969. And it's assumed that over the course of the entire 1960s, one in every 20 Americans had a role in the Apollo projects. It was this all-consuming goal to get to the moon. Because all JFK said was, by the time the decade is out, that is what we are doing. He set a course for a vision, a promise, and a purpose that was ahead of them. And they made a way to get there. And part of what he also did was, I think in talking about the Soviets and the threat that they posed, is that JFK didn't just set a destination for where they were going. He made a pretty compelling case for why we can't stay here. And I think that's a unique part of leadership, is sometimes you're not always talking about the promise that is way off in the distance, because unfortunately, some people don't like change. People don't like to, to, to yes, they like promises and they like lofty goals, but they don't like the process to always get there. So he made this compelling argument in the same speech where he said, this is not where we can remain. And both things ended up coming to life, that we can't stay here, so we're going to the moon. And it's a perfect segue, I believe, into the story of Moses. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and get your Bible out. If you have a phone, go ahead and get your phone out. We're going to cover 18 chapters of Exodus today. So it's like 1045, so maybe by like 2.30 we can be out of church. We have to talk about how Moses is going to the moon and the promise that he set for the Israelite people in the book of Exodus. Does everyone have a Bible in front of them? If it's a device, that's fine. I ain't judging. It's all good. Just say this out loud with me as we get started and we start talking about promises. Just say, Holy Spirit, reveal something new to me and something that's very familiar. Because the word of God is alive and active, right? And it can speak to us. Even though you think you've read the story of Moses a thousand times and you learned it when you were two years old, I believe the Holy Spirit can re reveal a new truth that's in that story. Amen? All right, so uh, Exodus, second book of the Bible, second book of the Jewish Torah, believed to be written by Moses. Um, the, the, the 
premise of the whole book is named after an event, the exodus of the people out of Egypt, which we're going to get there uh, today. So I'm going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 6. Yeah, verse 6. And it it reads, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous uh, that the land was filled with them. This is a nod back to the be fruitful and multiply command that we read in Genesis. They are being fruitful and they are doing it, literally and figuratively, uh, multiplying in the land. Verse 8, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. All right? So right off the bat, we're introduced to kind of the scene of what's going on in Egypt right now. But we're told that Joseph, uh, a character who we learned about in Genesis, if you've read the book of Genesis, Joseph is the guy with... Uh, the colorful coat, remember? He's uh, Jacob's uh, 11th son. Um, And he was a bridge between uh, the land of Egypt and the Israelites. If you remember the story, Joseph basically helped the entire region escape, um, specifically Egypt. He, he, He helped the entire region escape the ramifications of a famine. And Pharaoh would say, okay, I really appreciate that. Your people can come live among my people. You will be foreigners in my land, but I will treat you favorably. Well, now we've got an entirely new narrative. There is no more Joseph in the land, and the generations that are growing up there have no context for who Joseph was. There's a new pharaoh. There's a new king. There's a new law. And now we see the the Israelites in Egypt are being uh, treated shrewdly, it says. Let's pick up in verse 11 of chapter 1. It says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Let's jump to verse uh, 15. It says, The king of Egypt said, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, which mean beauty uh, and pearl in, in Hebrew, which I think is really cool. When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Okay, so we are on the same page here. Pharaoh still basically uh, in fear for his nation, for his reign, for his security as king and as ruler is, is decreeing a mass uh, murder of the firstborns, which we actually see later in the gospels, if you remember it as well. So he's saying kill every single boy. Um, and without maybe going into the whole um, passage of scripture, the, the, the midwives essentially say no, like absolutely not which I think in and of itself is a sermon like of its own making. The faith of these Hebrew midwives that they would actually defy a decree of the king to not kill, right, the babies that he said kill. But we see this uh, in chapter one is that, is, 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 is that Pharaoh's grasp around the Israelites is tight and he wants to control uh, the power that they have in the land. Let's jump to verse, or uh, to chapter two. This is where the story, however, starts to shift. This is when we get introduced to Moses. It says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi Levi, married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Enter Moses. 
who's not quite named yet as of now, but we are just told that he is a fine child who's hidden away and spared by the providence of God from the decree to kill the firstborns. He, like me, was a very fine child when he was born. (laughs) And they had to hide him because he was so beautiful. In all seriousness, though, I was born a, was born a twin, and I think, I think my skin was, like, see-through when I was born. I was a pretty ugly baby. Um, I'll show you some pictures maybe in, in, a, in a different sermon. Moses was hidden in his house. I was hidden in the NICU. We're basically the same. It's all good. I also find it interesting that um, if you jump back to verse 3, it said that his mom built a papyrus basket and placed him in it. That word, basket, if you're reading this in Hebrew, is tava, which is the same word that Noah uses to build an ark, which I just think is so beautiful that there is this picture already of a deliverance that's taking place through God's story that he will deliver his people. As we know, the earth flooded and the ark spared Noah, his family, and a bunch of animals in the same way. It's already pointing to, wait a sec, God's up to something here. So he's placed in the Nile, and as he floats down the river, the story tells us that Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the Nile. As she's bathing, the basket, I imagine, just kind of skates past her, and she grabs it. She opens it up, and she notices that the boy is Hebrew. Maybe it's skin complexion. Maybe it's the fact that he was circumcised. We don't know. All she knows is that this is a Hebrew boy, and she has compassion on him, and actually ends up taking Moses into her house to raise him as her own. So she's bathing in here, She sees the basket, she grabs the baby, but not only that, takes the baby to be her own, but not only that, goes and sends for a Hebrew woman to come and nurse the child, who is his mother. So in this this really odd but really beautiful turn of events, Moses' mom, in faith, sends him down the Nile, thinking, I don't know what's going to come of this, I don't know what's going to happen, and God's hand, I imagine, just over Moses the whole time in the river, ends up that she gets to raise her son uh, for a certain amount of years in his life. Already a beautiful story of the life of Moses. Moses gets to uh, live and dine and, and, and learn and grow in Pharaoh's kingdom. He would have access to the greatest teachers, to the best food. Can I get an amen on the best food? He'd be eating ribeyes most nights. And if it was me, it'd probably be like ribeye and some rice and maybe some veggies. And, but this was Moses' life, where the rest of his Hebrew brothers and sisters would have no access to the things that he had access to. God would actually use it to prepare him for the leadership role that he was going to put Moses in later on in the story. That there are some things that Moses was afforded in his life that he actually leveraged for a greater purpose. I want to show you a slide of of Moses' birth and then the second season of his life as well from ages 0 to 40. Uh, Go go over to the next one for me with with two. Yeah, there you go. All right, so from from birth, uh, we covered the broad strokes, right? He's, He's spared by God's providence, placed in the Nile. He's a beautiful child like me. And he eventually goes to, yeah, thank you, I appreciate that goes to be raised in the house of Pharaoh. Well, the next, I'm, I'm definitely giving away the ending here, but like I said, you should probably know this. The next season of his life, however, takes a dramatic shift. It takes a dramatic shift. Exodus tells us in chapter three that at some point, or chapter two, that at some point when Moses was grown up, 
We don't know what age that is. We don't know if it's 16, 18, 20. We have no real way of knowing. But when Moses was grown up, he's living in Pharaoh's house. He's starting to maybe come to terms with the fact that he's Hebrew, being raised Egyptian. And, and, and he walks outside and he sees one of his Hebrew brothers being uh, beaten by an Egyptian. And I, from what I imagine, he, he, he feels this rage within him. And he strikes down the Egyptian and kills him in broad daylight. The Bible says he kind of looked around, struck down the Egyptian, and then buried him in the sand. Pharaoh hears about this, and he wants to kill Moses, his grandson, step-grandson. I don't know. I don't know the family dynamics. Maybe it's awkward. Maybe it's not. But he wants to kill Moses, which I could never imagine a grandparent killing a child. But he wants to kill Moses. So Moses does what any, I think, of us would do, and he flees. He leaves. He goes east. And the Bible very specifically says that he goes east because I believe this is a nod back to the Cain and Abel story where Cain strikes down Abel and then Cain flees east from God. Moses is running from God. He is a man on the run. So he runs to a place called Midian, which if you look at a map of Egypt, Midian is due east of Egypt. And if you also look at maybe what's surrounding it, there is nothing there. It's just desert. He runs from the king's house to the desert. What a drastic change in geography, is it not? But not only that, he meets his wife in Midian, gets married, and gets employed by his father-in-law, which I'm not saying that the job was bad, but I don't know that if I had to compare working in the king's house versus working for my father-in-law, excuse me, what? Moses leaves the comforts of the kingdom to live in the desert, and tend to the flock of his father-in-law. This is not the upgrade, the promotion, the transition that I think he was expecting, but he very clearly broke a law, righteous or not, and killed an Egyptian, which makes me think there are ramifications for the sins that we commit in our lives. Are there not? And you can say that Moses is running, or you can say it's God's punishment, whatever, however you want to look at that. But Moses is not really in a great spot here. And it, it, it blows my mind to think about the people that God uses to fulfill his promises. Like that Moses would kill a man and God would still see it right to use him for a greater purpose, a greater glory, a greater story that God is writing. And you think about character after character in the Bible, maybe a lot that we're talking about in this series. Like remember that one time that David saw a woman bathing on a roof would go and sleep with her, but that wasn't enough. Because he wanted her so bad, he would arrange for her husband to be killed on the front lines of battle, right? David and Bathsheba. Or, or maybe the time when Abraham pimped his wife out so that maybe he was trying to protect people, but that's essentially what happened, right? Or maybe when Paul used to persecute and kill Christians, God would still use him to write two-thirds of the New Testament. We, I think, so often try to disqualify ourselves from the story that God is trying to write that we get in our own way of God doing something actually miraculous in our lives. And for the next 40 years, Audrey, if you could put that slide back up, for the next 40 years, that's a long, I'm not even 40 years old. That's longer than my lifetime. He would live in the wilderness because of a sin that he committed that would make him go on the run. Let's uh, pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of, his, uh, of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. 
And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And here enters the story of the burning bush, which, like I said, we're covering 18 chapters. Each one of these things could be its own message. So just give me some grace and how fast we're trying to go through it. But God clearly reaches out to Moses here, which is, I believe, absolutely beautiful. And it's a picture of actually how God works in our lives every single day. That, that over and over again, if God is here, we easily turn this way and we go the other way. And yet God, who is rich in mercy and who is the source of love and goodness and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, he would come after us. And he comes after Moses. I'm gonna pick up in verse seven, chapter three, and makes Moses a promise. He sets course to go to the moon. Remember JFK and the moon thing? The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. We serve a God who hears the cries of his people. And he wants to pull them out of the captivity that they are in. Because he has compassion on them. I heard once that mercy is the way that God deals with us. It's the way that his interactions with us are governed. And I believe he has mercy on his people as he hears their cries. And he says, I'm, I'm gonna do something about that. And what's so interesting in this text is he says that I have come down to do something. I have come down to free them. But, but, but we know that God didn't come down in the form of Jesus yet. God didn't come down in the form of the angel of the Lord yet. This is him clearly commissioning Moses. I have come down and I'm going to use you to free my people. Yes, even though Moses, you killed an Egyptian and you've been on the run from me for 40 years, my purposes are a lot greater than how fast you can run away from me. Let's go ahead and show the next slide of his next season, 40 to 80 years. So God appears to him in the desert and he says, go I have made you a promise that there will be a land and the footprints in that land will belong to my people. The sand and the shores and the trees, it will belong to me and my people. Exodus is the book where God actually so closely identifies himself as Yahweh with a people group, right? That we would eventually get Leviticus where God would uh, give the law. We would eventually get numbers where God would expand his people. God is attaching himself to Israel in this story right now. And that covenant will never be broken. This is when Yahweh reveals himself as I am and attaches himself to Israel. So he says, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And as we know, Moses goes back to Egypt, which if you, if you just, I know 40 years is a long time, but think about like if, if, if everyone in Egypt knew that you had killed an, a, an, an Egyptian and even the Israelites knew that you killed one of the slave drivers, there might be some chatter and you might have a reputation when you walk back into town and they're like, oh, there's Moses. What's he doing back here? We thought you were dead. We thought you ran away. We didn't know what happened to you. 
So he's already walking back with not a chip on his shoulder. What's the opposite of a chip on your shoulder? He's walking back with shame. He's walking back with this curiosity of, I really don't know what I'm walking into, right? And he walks back and we know that Pharaoh says what when he says, let my people go? He says, absolutely not. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate that. He says, no, deny, 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 like any, pol- any good politician would, right? Denied. I'm not letting my people, he, he says, my people, like claiming ownership over them. We know these are God's people, though. No way, I'm not letting anybody free. So, in response to Pharaoh's unwillingness, what does God end up doing? Does anybody know? The plagues. God would go on to send 10 plagues towards Egypt that would do a lot of things. They would, one, they would be an extreme uh, inconvenience. I think we overlook that part a lot. Like, if you look at the one that says, a plague of frogs. Like, imagine just walking around trying to, like, avoid all these frogs. Like, I'm just trying to get some milk from Publix. And here I am trying to, like, mosey my way through frogs. It's an inconvenience. The plagues, if you look underneath each title, challenged a very specific God in Egypt. Very specific God. When the Nile was turned to blood, it challenged the Egyptian God, Hopi, who is the water bearer of Egypt that he brought all this water and the Nile and he brought all this sustenance and water would bring what? It would bring uh, life and fruit and vegetation and things like that. And, and, and God is gonna challenge a lot of Egyptian gods. Each plague had a purpose. Now, what's really interesting is in this story, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, which you can spend the rest of your years trying to figure out if that's a violation of free will, if that's God's plan from the beginning, like all of these crazy questions, which maybe I just think about because it's super like, I don't know, I like to pontificate on random stuff. Just ask the staff. It's very weird. I just sit around and think about stuff. Uh, but the first plague, let's, let's, let's go through a couple of these. So the first plague, Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go. God's response is, all right, Moses, I'm gonna turn the entire, entire Nile to blood as a true distinction between Pharaoh is not God. He does not have control of my people. I am God. So I'm going to turn the whole Nile to blood for seven days, by the way, too. That's a long time. Could you imagine if the whole Atlantic Ocean was blood or the intracoastal or something like that? I mean, that's gnarly. No fishing, no swimming, no surfing if it's the ocean. Like you've just taken away a, 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 a source of recreation, but also very practical. This is the economy. You're, you're, you're breaking the economy, God. The second plague was the plague of frogs, like I was talking about going to Publix and trying to walk around frogs, right? That challenged the goddess of fertility, whose name is Heket. And interestingly enough, in Egypt, it was illegal to kill a frog. Don't ask me why. I just, I read it in the commentary. I'm not really a big fan of frogs. When I read that, I thought it was a little bit odd, but it was illegal to kill a frog in Egypt. The goddess Heket, her, her head, you know how in Egypt they have all those elaborate drawings? Her head was actually a frog. Very clearly going against that goddess, right? The third plague, a plague of gnats. Some translations say lice, which is synonymous with preschool, because that's where everyone gets lice from. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this plague, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you're just sitting there raking lice out of your kid's hair. You've all, we've all done it, okay? This plague was a rebuke of the god Geb, who was the god of earth, because the Bible says that all the dust in all of Egypt would turn to lice or gnats. I like to envision them as lice because I don't really want them to fly around. You know what I'm saying? Uh, And then the fourth plague, flies, livestock, boils and sores, hail, which hit the ground and turned to fire. That's crazy. That's a sermon in and of itself. 
locusts and darkness. We get all the way to the ninth plague and it's dark. You couldn't see a thing. It's pitch black. And all of these plagues were a response to Pharaoh over and over and over and over again saying, I'm the narrator. I'm in control of the story. And and if I have anything to do with it, God's promises will not be fulfilled. And you will not take these people who are my slaves, who are my economic powerhouse, you will not take them from Egypt because they belong to me, 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 me. Pharaoh was probably a narcissist as well. And he probably had some, 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 some power struggle, power trip issues, did he not? So God says, all right, the 10th time around, I'm going to wage war directly on Pharaoh. I'm not going to fool around with these small G gods. I'm going to go directly after the man who thinks he's the capital G God. And what he did has now become known as Passover. Because God said, the 10th plague, I will take every firstborn from the nation of Egypt. The, the firstborn from your livestock, which if you look in this list, he had already killed a bunch of livestock. And then he goes and does it again with the firstborn. So as they're recovering from this massive plague of livestock, and they got a couple more lambs and a couple more cows and a couple more goats, God's going to take those as well. But not only that, I'm going to take every firstborn of every family in Egypt if you do not do the following. And he gives these very specific instructions to Moses. And it, it's, it's kind of like the whole story stops. The whole story stops here. And I believe it's a, it's a direct point to the gospel that one day will take place thousands of years later. God instructed Moses, he said, take a lamb, sacrifice it, spill its blood and use the blood and paint the doorposts of your house because I'm gonna bring a plague that's gonna kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. But if the blood of the lamb is covering the doorpost of your household, the angel of death will pass over your house. It will have mercy on you. It says, at midnight, the Lord struck, I mean, uh, Exodus 3.29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead in it. God was good on what he said. God promised, I will take the firstborns if the blood of the lamb is not covering the doorpost of their house. And he did. And I don't know what that does to your theology. It's a tough thing to think about. Remember, the Egyptians are uh, the enemies of the Israelites, but you almost wonder to yourself, does there, was there no one good in the land that God would have to do this? And yet we see that God, one, his ways are way beyond our ways. Right, his ideas far beyond our, our ideas. The wisdom of God that we, or the wisdom of man that we think we've conjured up and built up, it, it's actually foolishness to him. God would do the unimaginable and take the firstborns from the land of Egypt. Verse 31 says, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. And can we just stop here for one second? Can you imagine as a parent losing your firstborn? Because 10 times you have said your people cannot leave that I have hardened my heart. You cannot, you cannot have uh, a land to freely worship God in. I'm not gonna let you go. And then as a parent, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron because he just lost his firstborn. And he says, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. 
immediate change of heart. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And do you think he's saying it like, oh, go, get out? No, I think he's saying, go, get out. Like this is over. I'm done with the gnats. I'm done with the frogs. I'm done with the livestock. And now you've killed my firstborn son. Get out of here. You curse. But that's not what he says. Go to, uh, go to the next slide for me. He says, go, but then he says, and bless me. Hey, while you're leaving, go ahead and bless me, which I think I've read over that verse a thousand times. And I was reading it in preparation for this, and I said, wait a sec. This was the moment that I think Pharaoh recognized that the God of the Israelites was actually real and was who he says he was. This is when he says, There's, there is something you've got figured out with this God of the cosmos. So while you're up and you're leaving, go ahead and give me a blessing as well. Back to the whole narcissist with a power trip thing, by the way, too. Like, he did not, it's, not, it's not really helping his case here. But it, do, it, it makes me think. How often do we recognize God in our lives, but instead of worshiping him like Pharaoh should have done, we just look at God like a vending machine and say, okay, I know you've got this thing figured out. You're pretty big and powerful and mysterious. Why don't you just go ahead and bless me and give me a couple things while I'm around here? Why don't you go ahead and just give me that job that I need? Now, I'm not going rem- like, to remember you or follow you or do the things that you ask of me, but, but, but could you just give me a blessing? Like how often do we treat God like he's some Coke machine, right? I believe this is what Pharaoh just did. And so they head out. And here we see the purpose of the whole book, Exodus. They leave the land in which they were enslaved in. This has been the longest buildup to fulfilling a promise, has it not? Imagine living 40 to 80 years through it all. So they head out of Egypt. I'm going to pick up in verse 13. It says, Moses answered the people. He said, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You need only to be still. So here's what just happened. The Israelites leave the land of Egypt, the land in which they were enslaved in, which put, put your mindset back there real quick. There are generations of people who have only ever known slavery. There are generations of people who have never left Egypt. There are generations of people who have only worked with brick and mortar their entire lives. And there's this random guy named Moses who says, yeah, let's get out of here. Let's leave. They've gone through the 10 plagues, but they're still, I believe they're still kind of scratching their head. Like, you're going to lead us in the desert? Like, where are we going? So they start to get afraid. And not only do they get afraid, But the reason this verse was written is because it's in a response to, though Pharaoh had very hastily sent them out of the land, at some point in their journey out of Egypt, he has a change of heart. And Pharaoh gathers 600 chariots and he starts going after the Israelites. So at one point when he was screaming, leave, get out of here, my firstborn is dead. At some point he changes course, gathers 600 chariots and, and, and starts to pursue The Israelites, who, by the way, there was about 2 million people in that group of people who were leaving. That's a pretty massive group of people. I think sometimes when we do Sunday school, we see like four or five people gathered up and walking through the ocean or walking through the desert. This was 2 million people, which means as they're being led out of Egypt with a a pillar of smoke and a cloud and all that, I think the day that the the pillar of smoke moves is actually kind of a bummer day because we got to go walk with 2 million people. That's two Jacksonvilles. Do you know that? That is two cities of Jacksonville. But here they are, and they're starting to get scared. They look at Moses and they say, 
The Israelites are coming. Remember, it's a desert. You can see from far off. You see the dust cloud. They said, Moses, was there no graves in Egypt that you could bury us in? You had to lead us all the way out to the desert to die? You had to lead us here to die. And in Moses' brain, he's like, no, there's a promise that God is going to fulfill. There is a land we're going to. Your footprints are going to cover the land in which he has promised you. You just need only to be still and trust that he's going to do it because he will fight for you. And stuck between the sand on one side and the sea on the other, God instructs Moses. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the seas to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And maybe I don't have the faith of Moses, but if you're telling me to lift up a staff to split an ocean, I might just laugh at you. But in faith... What does Moses do? I believe the last 40 years of his life had prepared him for a moment like this. He had a staff in his hand as a shepherd, knowing full well that the staff leads the flock. The staff protects the flock. That the, that the, the shepherd holds the staff as a sign of, I got this, and I got you. And God told Moses very clearly, lift it up, and I will fight for you. You need only to be still. And what happens? He, lift, he lifts the staff up. He stretches out his hand. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch, stretch out your hand. Oh, sorry, I skipped ahead. Whoops. Uh, verse 23, The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots uh, and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, which is important, because as he's holding that up, there's two million people walking through. This isn't like a two-minute like passage through the Red Sea. This is a long time he's holding, he's holding that thing up. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, but remember that Sunday when we walked around the building a bunch and just prayed and just prayed and prayed and prayed? That took a while, did it not? You know, some of y'all are faster than others, some of y'all slower, whatever. Imagine going through with two million people. That's a long time. My hand gets tired, you know, when, when we instruct people to reach out your hand and pray? My hand gets tired when I do this. Could you, could you imagine Moses standing there with a staff for that long? It says, during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw them into confusion. The picture here is they're chasing after Moses. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites, which by the way, is what they had just decided to do the week prior before Pharaoh had a change of heart and wanted to run after them. Okay, not all leadership is wise. He, and, the, and the Egyptians said, the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, meaning they were coming into the sea and the Lord swept them into the waters. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, and not one of them survived. They le they're led through an ocean. They're led through an ocean. And God would defeat every single enemy. And all they would need to do is be still, for he is fighting for them. Why is he fighting for his people? He's fighting for his people because he's fulfilling his promise that God will lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey. That God will give them a spacious land, a good land, a place with life and safety and abundance. 
and God will stop at nothing to fulfill the promises he's made to his people. And it took a long time. Can we show that slide again, Audrey, with the three seasons of of Moses' life? It took 40 years of Moses running in the desert. It took another 40 years, eventually, of them wandering through the desert. I mean, this was a long journey, but God is faithful. I get impatient when I'm waiting for God to do something in a matter of hours or in a matter of days. But can you imagine God working over the course of 40, 80, or 120 years? Does it make him any less faithful when he's not on your timetable, though? No. That God's faithfulness and God's promises are still very much alive as he's working in your life. I want to go ahead and invite the band to come back up. And it leads me to this point that I want to make, and it's as simple as this. I didn't write anything clever. I just said nothing can break the promises of God. That if I look at the life of Moses over 80 to 120 years, I see faithfulness and I see provision and I see him being good on his promise. That just like we sang in the opening worship set, you can take God at his word. That he is trustworthy, that he is faithful, right? What are the promises of God that you hold on to in your life when all seems to be going downhill? Do you remember that God said, I am with you? right? I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you remember that God said, I will uphold you. I will keep you in perfect peace, in perfect shalom, peace, fulfillment. Do you hold on to the fact that God goes before you, that God is behind you, that God is all around you? That's a promise, that his presence will never depart from any moment of your life, that he is closer than the skin that you wear on your bones. Do you hold on to that promise? You hold on to the promise maybe that he will give you rest. When you're tired and you're weary, you feel like you got nothing left in the tank. Do you remember his promise that his grace is sufficient for you? Do you hold on to the promise that his mercy is new every morning? That every day when that sun rises, your cup is immediately filled with new mercy from God on high. That sin might be deep in your life, but grace is so much deeper. Do you hold on to the promises of God? I think back to the life of Moses and I think there are moments where people thought this guy was nuts. But would we be people so consumed with the promise of God that no obstacle would look too big? Because in light of God, it's, it's pretty darn small, is it not? But there's greater promises going on than just the promise for a promised land. You see, if you remember back to the book of Genesis, God makes a covenant, makes a promise with a man named Abraham. And what does he tell Abraham? He says, one day you will have descendants that outnumber the stars because of your faith. Abraham, in his old age, didn't think it was possible to have a baby and God delivered his promise through his son Isaac which we talked about a couple weeks ago God would eventually lead Abraham to take Isaac up a mountain do you trust God when God asks you to kill the promise and God would come through and be faithful but even go back even further with me go back to like Genesis like the first three chapters of Genesis God speaks to creation he pulls darkness or pulls light out of darkness from nothing He brings calm and structure and order to the chaos. 
and he creates the he he creates everything we know. Then he creates Adam and Eve, and he makes a promise to them even after the fall. And he says, Genesis three fourteen. He's talking to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. This is right after Eve had eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. This is directly to the serpent. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between uh, your offspring and hers. And you will, listen to this, you will strike his heel, which means that Eve will have an offspring one day who will appear to be injured by this enemy, this serpent, this deceiver. But the follow-up verse is, but he will crush your head. And it's the first time that the gospel is preached in the entire Bible. In Genesis chapter three, we're like two pages into the whole story. And God says, you will crush the head of the enemy. It's a promise. Not you, Eve, not you, Adam, but one day your offspring will. Who one day would be who? Jesus. Who would lead us through the waters of baptism, not the waters of the Red Sea. Who would lead us out of the clutches of the enemy, the serpent, the deceiver himself, not just a Pharaoh. And he would bring us into a land that is spacious. Behold, I go and I prepare a place for you, which we know to be eternity with God on high. There's a promise that God has kept alive since the third chapter of Genesis. That he is faithful and true to deliver today if we would just be so bold to believe. That God turns an ocean into a highway in Exodus. That he brings forth life from an old man in Genesis when Isaac is born. That he makes the sun stand still in Joshua. You remember that story? When the sun stood still. He directed ravens to feed Elijah in 1 Kings. Remember that? He used a fish to foster obedience in Jonah. He stood with the three Hebrew boys in the fire. He'll stop at nothing to fulfill his promise. And then one day he used a cross to bring reconciliation between God and all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that no one would perish but have eternal life. And the only way we do that is to put our belief in Jesus. There's no magic formula. There's no action that you can conjure up and do to outwork grace. The Bible just says you need to believe and confess. Believe one, that Jesus is the son of God. Believe two, that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then finally accept him as Lord and Savior of your life. This is the ultimate promise. The Red Sea was just the introduction. So this morning, I would ask you to bow your heads. Just close your eyes this morning. And if you, like me, just this morning, maybe this isn't the first time you've accepted salvation, but like me, you just need to be reminded and reintroduced to the person of Jesus in a new, fresh way, the real Jesus. Then you, in your own words, just say, Jesus, here I am. From the craziness of my week to the busyness that I've walked through, Maybe I've turned my back on you. Maybe I've doubted you. Maybe your word has not been sufficient in my life. 
whatever it is, you just tell Jesus right now. You say, have yours. Everything I have, everything that I am. Right now, you remember the promise that he, through sanctification, is making you new every single day. And you just ask Jesus right now, Jesus, I want to look more like you tomorrow than I did today. And 10 years than I did 10 years ago. And I want to be better at 70 than I am right now, whatever age you're at. And if you're at 70, better at 100. If that's not you, and you've yet to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is your moment right now. That this moment is as good as any other right now that you would place your trust in Jesus because the story of one man named Moses who, who, who was just bought into a promise would lead you to believe that Jesus came and fulfilled the ultimate promise and he did it for you. And when he died on that cross, it counted for you. The sins that you've committed both now and the sins that you will commit commit in the future are covered, they are paid for, that you are made his righteousness. And the invitation is, do you believe? And the only thing that matters in 100 years, 200 years, 300 years is what did you do with the man from Galilee named Jesus? Did you put your faith and your hope and your trust in him when you had an opportunity? And for those of you who have doubts, man, I doubt that God could actually bring death and destruction like that. Man, I doubt that given all the craziness that happens in the world with cancer and divorce and heartache and all these things and starvation and human trafficking, I can't believe that there's a God who would allow all of that to happen. I would say to you, come with your doubts and just lay them at the feet of Jesus. That's not to say your doubts and your thoughts are not important, but it is to say, Maybe right now you would recognize that Jesus is far above all of that. And he has answers for it if you would only trust him. And just confess, I've fallen short. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And right now, I call him the same God that Moses called on. I call him the same God that Jacob and Abraham and David and Elijah called on. And I believe in the name of Jesus that is a name above every single name. And you just commit to him right now. Jesus, I'm yours. I will live my days according to your word and your truth and your purpose. Remembering your promise that you are preparing a place for me to dwell one day. And it's not a desert through an ocean, but it's in the pearly gates of eternity on high with God. So Jesus, here we are. Committing or recommitting, finding or rediscovering you in this moment. The God of the promise. The I am, Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, our Lord. We worship you in this moment right now. We're grateful for the seasons you've led us through faithfully. Even when we've turned, even when we've run, and you found us in our own desert, and you pulled us out, and you're leading us somewhere new. In Jesus' name. I pray for hearts both near and far from you in this moment, Jesus. That though you hold the stars in your hands, you are so intimately acquainted with the details of our lives that you have the ability to meet us exactly where we are. And I just pray for the grace to start fresh this morning. Thank you, Jesus. We express our gratitude for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you go ahead and stand with me?